Spunout.ie, in partnership with the National Youth Council of Ireland and the Youth 2030 programme, is raising awareness about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals set out a plan to achieve a better and more sustainable future for everyone. The SDGs recognise that we live in an interconnected, interdependent and yet unequal world. In order to leave no one behind, it is important we achieve each goal and target by 2030. Each podcast in this series explores a different sustainable development goal from a young person's perspective. The podcasts have been researched, produced and recorded by a group of passionate young Spunout.ie volunteers from all across Ireland. The podcasters focus on specific goals that they're interested in and give insights into what we can do to achieve the goals. In this podcast, Creedon Omeraku focuses on goal number 13, climate action. Creedon talks to Dr. Cara Augustenberg, a fellow in UCD environmental policy and a climate activist. They explore climate action in Ireland, renewable energy, and the impact young people can have on the climate crisis. I was born in 1998. In that year, Google was created, the Good Friday Agreement was signed, Exxon and Mobil merged, and assembly of the International Space Station had started. From an early age, I became fascinated with the world around me. Science and technology were what I built my world around. I asked questions about how things worked, why things were the way they were, and I was never truly satisfied. I needed to know more. One of the earliest books I remember owning was a sort of physics encyclopedia. In it, it detailed the world around me, why icy roads were slippery, how rainbows were made. I knew from that early age that whatever I did in life, science would be at its core. When I was younger, I had never heard of the term climate change. It wasn't until I was around 10 or 11 whilst watching Top Gear that I heard Jeremy Clarkson mention the phrase. He didn't care much about the topic. He imagined warmer and drier English summers and only thought good of it. Jokingly, he asked people to be less fuel conscious in hopes he could enjoy his native country's weather a bit more. Even in the short span of my life, I've noticed the world begin to change around me. As I got older, I noticed things like increasing stretches of dry weather, more heavy storms and natural disasters, and the years seemed to get hotter and hotter. When I had just begun my second semester of my first year in college, I saw a headline that really shook me. It wasn't super unexpected, but it still saddened me, made me anxious of what was to come. The headline simply said, 2016, the hottest year ever. In the time since records began in the 1800s, I happened to be alive when the hottest year on record occurred. I knew then that I wanted to make some change. I wanted to use my future degree in chemistry to help educate people and maybe even help write some legislation or fight for a government who will make the changes we need to make in order for thousands of species to survive. The fact that we continue to plough through records like nothing is terrifying to me. If you were born later than 1980, you've never experienced a year below the average temperature. Coinciding with the hottest year on record, in 2016, the UN created the Sustainable Development Goals. These goals are a sort of guideline for people and nations to act on in order to improve the world around us. Whilst I think every goal is important and should be worked on, there are a couple focused on climate action and sustainability, which are of particular interest to me. I sat down with Dr. Cara Augustenberg to discuss climate action in Ireland, renewable energy, the impact young people can have, and more. I do hope you enjoy our conversation. So for those who don't know you, could you introduce yourself a little bit? My name is Dr. Cara Augustenborg. I'm a fellow at University College Dublin in Environmental Policy. I co-host the Down to Earth slot with Ivan Yates on News Talk FM on Tuesdays at 6.30. And I'm also a member of President Higgins Council of State. And of course, you're a climate activist. 
Was there any specific moment where climate activism became your passion? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, a growing interest in environmental issues over time. Um, environment was something I, I wanted to work on as my career. But I think the, the kind of light bulb moment for me was in 2008 when I was uh, on, a, on a trip sponsored by Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company, to the Arctic as part of their climate change college. And I had kind of known about climate change and polar bears and, you know, melting ice caps. But I think what surprised me is at the time there was an Inupiat or an Eskimo community living in the Arctic, in Arctic Alaska that I met, who started telling me that already their their way of life was being affected by climate change and that they felt like they were a culture that would very soon cease to exist because they were so dependent upon sea ice for hunting and fishing. And as the sea ice was getting thinner, it was getting harder for them to do this kind of subsistence hunting. Uh, and they were more dependent on imported foods and things. So uh, that was the light bulb moment for me, because before then, climate change seemed like a, a problem in the future. And then suddenly became a, a, a problem that was happening there and then. And I, when I came back to Ireland, I, I then became much more committed to, to actually trying to do something about it. Wow, that's fascinating. She's how did that make you feel initially when you when you came across these people and they were telling you their stories? Oh, I was really surprised because I, I just didn't really see climate change before then as being an issue that was directly affecting people. And particularly these people were American citizens and I, I grew up in America. So, uh, you know, the people I did hear about climate change affecting were people in the third world and you know, developing countries. And so the fact that American citizens were already being affected made me realize how vulnerable we all are. I think what makes climate change such a wicked problem is in a way it kind of is all of our faults, particularly if we live in, in the developed world because we as humans are dependent on fossil fuels and and fossil fuels have gotten us to the, the the kind of success that we as a human species see today with 7 billion people in the world you know it's because of the internal combustion engine that we've been able to intensify food production and improve public health and all of these great things um, so if you live in the developed world you've contributed to climate change if you've been on a plane you've contributed to climate change you know um, so th that's what makes it hard is that everyone's kind of struggling with this guilt and you know in a way we're all responsible um so i can't say that i go around telling people you know don't feel guilty though i will say that uh certainly our our government policies don't make it easy for us to do the right thing so i do spend a lot of time talking about the fact that even if one person as an individual tries to do all the right things as long as their energy and transport systems are powered by fossil fuels, which is kind of out of their control, um, it's very hard for an individual to address climate change. So how would you go about someone reconciling their guilt? Or would you have any personal guilt when it comes to climate change in things that you know have affected it or things that you enjoy that might affect it? Yeah, I have I have personal guilt uh, about <laughs> about everything I do because I'm so aware of um, the environmental impact. So it's not even about climate change. It's you know if I want to uh, paint a room in my house, I know that I'm slapping a load of chemicals on the wall. You know, mm -hmm. uh, or if I want to buy a piece of new furniture, I'm aware that it has a carbon footprint, and you know potentially the fabrics used to make it were full of chemicals that are in water systems. So you know the more you know the more you're, you're kind of wracked with guilt because you just uh, you can't 
easily do the right thing. So I think it's about trying to make the smartest choices. And we can't say, look, we're all going to turn off the lights and live with candles and stop using, you know, cars altogether and everything. So um, you try and do to make the smartest choice with the technology you have available to you and you do your best and, and good enough is good enough, you know, Um and then I also think that probably the most impactful thing people can do then is rather than agonizing over all these little individual changes is to really fight for system change for the big, big changes. And that's why I went from science, where I really you know, thought I could make a difference on these issues, into policy and politics, because I realized that's where the real significant big differences can be made. Do you think that there's maybe a, the hyper-awareness can contribute to someone's negative mental health? I think for young people in particular that uh, don't feel that they have control or, uh, you know, a lot of uh, options to influence this issue, it is, it's troubling to me where, where it can go with mental health. I mean, particularly at the, in the third level system in Ireland now, we're, we're hearing uh, reports that there are a lot of students that are suffering with anxiety and depression. Uh, and then when they hear media headlines on top of this, talking about how we only have 11 years left to tackle climate change, that only exacerbates uh, their their feelings already. Uh, and then for younger people that don't even have a right to vote, um, that really makes them feel a, a lack of control. But I think if you look like some someone like Greta Thunberg, who, who has talked about how she was in depression for four years and that the climate crisis contributed to that depression, um, certainly what's happened to her in recent years has, has, has lifted her out of that depression because she, she doesn't feel alone anymore. She's surrounded by people who share her, her value system and her beliefs and are all fighting uh, to change the system. So activism is a real way to, to pull out of that anxiety and depression and to mobilize around the issue to influence change. And, and you know, that can have a very positive effect. So I think that these, um, these scary fights that we have to have sometimes with big fossil fuel enterprises um, can often result in making us feel empowered when we're when we're successful. You, you mentioned the renewable energy there. Is there a preferred type of renewable energy that you would like to see implemented here? Uh, well, I think the problem with re- renewable energy is that it's not quite as consistent as our, our fossil fuel supply. And, and so that means you need diversity. And, and so, for example, you know, we have phenomenal wind resources here in Ireland. And so definitely wind has to be part of the solution for Ireland. But uh, we don't always have the wind blowing. And usually when the wind's not blowing, the sun is shining. Uh, so there's an opportunity there for solar too. And, and so you know, we should start now to start seeing solar farms and even mix of solar and wind farms. But then even solar and wind are not... 100% reliable. So we need what's called a, a spinning reserve, which is essentially an alternative to fossil fuels. And that often comes in the form of, of a biofuel. So then biofuel has to become part of the mix too. And we don't want to be chopping down old growth Canadian forests to supply that biofuel. So we need to start growing kind of indigenous biomass and plant material to feed into those, those biofuel digest, digesters to make that power. Um, so I think those three are, are all options, um, you know, potentially hydropower as a kind of a storage reserve like we've seen in Turlock Reservoir could could have a potential, though, though obviously there's environmental impacts of, of blasting through rock to create dams and reservoirs that we need to be concerned about. 
And then I think we should be looking at uh, what the role of electric vehicles and battery storage is going to have, because uh, our government has a has a very ambitious, possibly unattainable plan for nearly a million electric vehicles in the country, I think by 2030. And uh, all of those are potential storage reservoirs for power supply. So when we have excess wind and uh, excess sun, we could be dumping it onto uh, electric vehicles temporarily and then taking it off of those electric vehicle batteries when we need it. You, You mentioned biofuels there. Do you think they serve as more of a purpose for just transitioning where if they're used in combustion engines, they'll still have a net increase in their carbon footprint? Yeah, I have reservations about biofuels and biomass because I, I don't think the evidence base is there to prove that uh, that biomass is always carbon neutral. So certainly, if you're, you know, if you're not managing, for example, a forest in the right way, um, and you're putting it on land that maybe was sequestering a lot of carbon before you planted those trees, you know, you can have uh, incidents where 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 that land becomes a carbon source and not a sink. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the evidence is is there to prove to us that, you know, this forestry site that we've planted is necessarily uh, a sink, particularly if we're we're then burning the material and it's going up in smoke. In 2013, we imported 84% of the biofuel we used in Ireland. Yeah, this is where you need politicians that actually have um, science education, and, and this is where we we fall down in Ireland. And uh, you know, you need evidence based policy. You need policy that actually links with science and and makes sense and genuinely does address climate change. And uh, we haven't always had that in our political system. I would historically blame the media. I think the media did, uh, did a really really poor job in kind of you know, the 2000s, even as late as 2016 in communicating the science of climate change. I mean, even a couple of years ago, I was still going on air to debate whether climate change existed when, you know, it was pretty clear at that stage yeah. that, it, that it existed and it was man-made. And, uh, and, and I was hugely critical of our mainstream media for continuing this very outdated narrative that they needed to always have what they called balance, which was, you know, a climate scientists versus a climate denier, usually who had no scientific qualifications. And and so they created this this false um, perspective in the general public that this question was still up for debate when it it wasn't, when the the scientific evidence was was almost unanimous. And uh, and really, we needed to be having the conversations, you know, saying, yes, we know climate change is happening. Yes, we know we have to act urgently. So what do we do about it? And we needed the public to start talking about what do we do about it and what are the hard choices choices we're going to make? And, and we've only gotten that kind of debate in the media almost in the last kind of 18 to 24 months. It's been a very recent shift in, in the media. Um, and we can see in the way people are voting now with the, the, the green wave in the last election that people get it. And that's because the media is communicating it properly. Do you think social media can have a positive impact overall or the media in general can have a positive impact overall when it comes to climate action? I've always felt that the media is kind of the battleground of where, you know, where this fight is. And, and so they have a huge role to play. Um whether or not it's mainstream media or social media, you know, I, there's a lot of debate around that. I still think that with mainstream media, you're getting, you know, 400, 500,000 listeners or viewers, and, and that's quite significant. Um, can you have the same reach with social media? Well, maybe if you pay for it, in which case you're, you're getting, you know, 
fossil fuel companies and businesses with corporate interests who maybe are getting significant reach through social media. Uh, but your average NGO is is not paying for that level of advertising on social media. So um, I don't think that yet um, the, the kind of the other side is getting the reach on social media uh, as of yet. But but if you look at someone like Greta Thunberg, who's managed to you know mobilize all these students around the world to strike to strike, um, I mean that's 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 an example of where social media has been far more effective in than mainstream media. I I definitely think I don't know I think social media is definitely interesting to me. It's definitely something I kind of think about looking at in the future in relation to climate action. Do the positives outweigh the negatives of us? Oh, in terms of is, is social media a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, exactly. I, uh, yeah, I think it's been a great thing. I mean, certainly for, for me, I, I kind of got my start in climate communications thanks to Twitter. So, um, so you know, it's given people like me and Greta Thunberg and everything a voice uh, that we never would have had, you know, where mainstream media would have never given us the time of day before. Um, so it's hugely empowering to individuals and communities and and for making people feel like they're they're not alone. So I think social media can be used for, for great good and for great evil. And I'm a huge fan of it when it's used the right way. But I also think we have to be very cautious about the messages we get through social media. Do you ever struggle with defeatism or feeling that, you know, you wonder, is this going anywhere? Am I going to have a positive impact? Or do you not yeah, worry about that too much? Oh, absolutely. I think this this happens regularly to me and to a lot of my my peers who are involved in, in environmental activism. Uh, the, the Amazon uh, burning recently, coupled with the Greenland ice sheet melting, you know, faster than scientists predicted and wasn't supposed to happen for the next 30 years. Um, that was a real moment for me where I just went, oh, no, like maybe it's too late. We're, we're starting to see this great shift in finally and in public understanding and, and engagement in this issue. But but I do fear that it's just uh, timed that bit too late, you know, and, um, and, and there's moments of hopelessness and despondency and, uh, and the thing that kind of picks you up is, is your is your peers because uh, I think I think this hits us all at different times so there's been times when when my peers have said to me I'm having a really down week this is really getting to me but the thing that gives me hope overall is like how fast societies can change and and I and I saw a presentation uh, given at one stage by um, the folks at carbon tracker and they showed a picture of of uh, New York Fifth Avenue on an Easter Sunday parade in, in 1900 and it was all horse-drawn carriages on the street. And then in 1913, 13 years later, it was all Model T Fours. And they talked about, you know, how nobody expected that that complete revolution of the transport system to happen in just 13 years. So when we decide to do something as humans, we can do it really quickly. And, and that's the hope that I'm carrying right now is it's very clear that we have decided as humans uh, to, to act now. And, and so I think now that we've decided, um, it's very possible for us to do this quickly. So, you know, the, the hope is still there, but but there are moments of, of kind of depression when, you know, when some big bad news like the Amazon comes out. And what do you make of Brazil's president turning down the 20 million euro repair fund? I I actually thought he had a very good point in that he said, you know, that money would be better served for you guys to reforest the European continent than for you to keep telling us, you know, what we're doing is 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 wrong. I mean the 
the carbon dioxide that was burned, uh, you know, that was released from the Amazon fires this summer was equivalent to about nine years of, of burning peat for electricity production in Ireland. So uh, I think when you when you put it in perspective, you know, um, it's very hard for us to judge uh, the Amazon for what they're doing as long as we continue uh, to do these things ourselves. And as long as we continue to promote this, you know, intensification of agriculture and, and international trade, because it's the international trade agreement, Mercosur, that's driving Brazil to burn rainforests so they can create more soy um, and, and, you know, and more kind of animal-based food products, you know, to feed cattle. So, uh, so it's that kind of international trade, I think, that's intensifying the environmental crisis and, and we were, you know, Phil Hogan was out there lobbying for Mercosur and promoting Mercosur. So this is what happens when you promote this kind of intensive trade uh, with dirty countries and this kind of race to the bottom in terms of how we produce our goods. So we know we need to move away from, so you've mentioned agriculture and peace in the same sentence there. How do you or how do we facilitate those workers who will most likely lose their jobs or kind of will have to find new lines of work? Yeah, this is what really bothers me about our, our government thus far is that we were told over 21 years ago by their own consultants that we needed to stop burning peat and coal for electricity production to to hit our climate targets. And our government ignored uh, that advice and has continued to ignore it. And now we're in this crisis where peat workers are getting laid off because, you know, the market's not there to, to keep doing something like this. And we have no plan, whereas we've had over 20 years to make that plan. I mean, a just transition task force should have been set up 20 years ago to, to figure out how we would transition these jobs away from peat. Um, and even now, what they've proposed to kind of address uh, talking about this issue is, is pretty weak. It's not. It's not at the extent of you know. If we if we hear that a major corporation is is firing a load of people in Ireland right away, a government minister mobilizes a task force to deal with the issue urgently, mm-hmm. and it's bizarre that they're not doing the same thing with with peat workers. That this isn't considered a crisis issue. I think there's a lot we can be doing because the plans that we have for our climate action plan are, are uh, you know, largely around energy retrofit of houses. And to be honest, I don't think the labor is there to do that energy retrofit. I mean, my own personal experience of trying to hire a plumber just to fix a sink is, is a nightmare, let alone try and get someone in that has uh, deep energy retrofit expertise. So there's huge opportunity there to be transitioning, you know, peat burning and fossil fuel workers into the energy retrofit schemes and renewable energy schemes, uh, and 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 that should that should be tackled urgently. And and it's just it's just moving at a snail's pace. Two things cropped up there. What would you rate the climate action plan as a whole? And do you think maybe nuclear energy could be used in that just transition phase, and those workers could transition into that? Uh, so on the first question, the Climate Action Plan had some good stuff in it around governance, but it was all stuff that the NGOs were calling for 
in 2014 and 2015 when the first climate legislation was being pursued, you know, things around, a, you know, a more robust um, kind of advisory council and, and much more stringent uh, sectoral targets for emissions reduction, uh, much more accountability. And what happened with the climate legislation is all of that got ripped out uh, by then Minister Alan Kelly when he was Minister for the Environment and, and climate legislation passed in 2015, but it was so watered down, it was almost useless and what the Climate Action Plan has now proposed is to sort of bring all those good things back into legislation. So I'm glad about that. I wish it had happened in 2015 when we were asking for it to begin with, but it's it's good that it's in there now. Um, and then, so that's a positive, but on the, on the negative side, I think it's still the plan is very much kind of business as usual model. Technology is going to get us out of this, particularly electric vehicles. I drive an electric vehicle. They're they're really fun cars to drive, but I can assure you they're you know they're not the magic silver bullet to to revolutionizing transport. Um, and then on agriculture again, it's business as usual. It's uh, forestry is going to you know sequester all of our emissions from agriculture, so we can keep intensifying animal agriculture. That's not realistic either. So you know so it's kind of a game of two halves or a plan of two halves on the nuclear side. I am, you know, not hugely opposed to nuclear in some places. I think we should keep our nuclear stations that are currently in existence operating until we've, you know, we've created renewable energy to to take over from from those power plants. Uh, I don't think we should necessarily be shutting them down before their their expiration date and switching to coal like like we're seeing happen in some places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the reality is we still don't know what to do with this waste. And so there's an intergenerational issue here for creating a waste product that lasts hundreds of thousands of years that's often located uh, on, on oceans, you know, because we need the cooling water. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have sea level rise and increased storms. And so what are we doing for, um, you know, generations 50, 100, 1,000 years from now? Mm-hmm. Uh, with respect to dumping them with this nuclear waste. And I know it's, you know, it's small quantities, but it's very potent and, you know, and, and lasts for a long time. So the waste issue hasn't been solved. And uh, whether or not this is a, tra- a transition option, I, w- I would say not, not for Ireland. If we spend all our time debating nuclear as the solution, we waste precious time that we could be implementing renewable energy now. So in terms of technology, you mentioned it a couple of times and on the Tonight Show before you mentioned technology and its uses for climate action, but you never really got to discuss it in depth. Can you flesh that out a bit more? Well, uh, so one one thing that I, that I found interesting recently is uh, I just got solar panels on my house because I've been complaining for for. A while now when I got my electric vehicle last year that uh, I'm, I'm still aware that my electric vehicle is being powered by peat and coal and whatever else the government decides to, you know, create energy with. Mm. Uh, and, and that bothers me because it means that I'm not really, um, you know, fossil fuel free, even though I'm not going to the petrol station anymore. Um, and so I recently was approached by a solar panel company that said, actually, you, you could be powering your car with, with solar energy, you know, for on the sunny days anyway. Um, so yeah, I've got these panels and they are right now, um, I've had them about a week and they're producing about 30% of my, of my household energy right now. So I should see my bills go way down. And if the government put in a, a feed-in tariff on the very sunny days, I could even be selling my excess electricity back to the grid. Right now I'm giving it back to the grid for free and it's helping Ireland 
uh, reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, but I'm not making any money off that. So there's a lot out there um, that we're not hearing about. And, and I think with electric vehicles too, there's a, you know, people don't really understand how they work. And um, so there's a lot of information out there on, on the electric vehicle side too. Yeah, I think that's the thing as well is like people think, again, if people think of solar cells or that or solar panels being used, you know, to heat water, I think it's a problem maybe in the scientific community where we use different words to explain kind of the same concept. Those cells used to generate electricity might be what are photovoltaic cells. Yeah, photovoltaic, yeah. Yeah, so and I think that's where people might get confused or that. It should kind of be our job, more so your job than mine at the moment, but Mm -hmm. as science communicators to break down those things and make the public aware of the difference. Yeah, and, and this is where it goes back to media because, uh, you know, we are always telling people, scientists that they need to change their communication style and need be more publicly accessible. I kind of disagree with that. I would say that's the role of journalists and that we need more, you know, science-savvy journalists and uh, who can translate this stuff because the scientist's job is to do the research and publish peer-reviewed papers and, and peer-reviewed papers are you know always intentionally overcomplicated in their language and and that's their job and that's what they're paid for they're not paid to be uh, media spokespeople and and you know and so it's the job of, of of the journalists and the media to translate that stuff into easily accessible uh, content for for public consumption. Do you think that comes back to the kind of age-old thing that science isn't quote-unquote sexy to the general public? No, I think science is sexy to the general public. <laughs> I, I, I think people want good news stories, and uh, and they're they're you know they're crying out for those because uh, there's just enough. There's too much bad news in the media as it is. Uh, so so I, I I think that the interest is there. Uh, but the content maybe isn't. And, and you know, the question of whose job is it to create the content and to push that kind of content out uh, is, is, isn't quite answered. Um, it, it's probably, a, you know, it's a huge opportunity for, for non-governmental organizations to be pushing that, out that kind of content. Uh, but they're so busy trying to change policies and laws. I don't think that they are, you know, they're they're really considering themselves as as media uh, broadcasting. But we see certain things like the Green News here in Ireland, GreenNews.ie, mm-hmm. is really trying. It's it's trying to create, uh, you know, very very good content, and a lot of that content is being picked up by the mainstream media. Um, so it's about getting people more aware that there are organizations like that around the world that are trying to create that content like Democracy Now! or whatever it is that are that are creating those good news stories and alerting people to, to what's out there. When I was in school, we were still just kind of, we just kind of mentioned ice caps melting, greenhouse gases when you got to secondary school. And in third level now, we just kind of, we mentioned climate change, but it's not studied, if you know what I mean. It's not examined. Yeah. And I think we have to break down that barrier and we have to change that altogether. Yeah, and I think acknowledging the fact that the education system in general has to change because now we have Google, and so we need our teachers to to teach, acknowledging that, that these students can get all this information themselves. So you know, let them go out there and get it, and our and our lectures and our classrooms become the place where we discuss these issues, not where we spit the information out to students who can get this stuff, you know, from better sources on the internet.
you know, I, I'm kind of doing this for the big picture. I have a nine-year-old daughter who, who I'm very worried about her future. And I often question, did, did I do the right thing in having a child who's going to be entering adulthood in the middle of a climate crisis um, and make, you know, she's going to have to make some tough decisions herself about the, the, whether or not she should have children. And, and, um, and so that's why I'm working. You know, it's for her. It's to create a future for her. So uh, I'm not really that focused on, on promotions and career advancement. Yeah, I get what you mean. I think it's very admirable of you and, and to be so kind of honest and upfront with it. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I appreciate that. I would, I would say I, um, I'm privileged to get to take that view because when I, I, I stood for election in 2014, uh, very briefly and knocked on 5,000 doors in my constituency. And one of the things I realized is that most people are dealing with very, very urgent, stressful issues. You know, they're worried about their health, they're worried about their jobs. Um, and and if you're like me and you get to wake up every day and worry about climate change and worry about, you know, your daughter's life in 30 years' time, mm-hmm. it means you don't have those urgent crisis issues in your life. Um, and, and I was surprised how many people do. Life is hard for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people are really struggling in Ireland. Even people who look like they're not struggling, um, you know, are, are kind of on the edge. And, um, and so maybe we can't expect, you know, we can't expect everybody to kind of stress out about the climate crisis in the same way I stress out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that, you know, just something to be aware of, you know, um, that taking that long range view is a, is a privilege, you know. I think that was an important step for me as well in, in terms of climate action, realizing my privilege. I think what really stood out to me was when I read Mary Robinson's book, uh, you know, and those 10, those 10 stories of, of the people who are most going to be affected by this. Yeah. And I think that really hit me the deepest was that in, you know, us in the, the developed world, we will struggle, we will have some difficulties, but they will mm-hmm. mostly come as economic strain rather than detrimental health risks or issues. Putting food on the table as a whole, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's what people don't realize yet. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of hope you're right that, that that's, you know, that our, we, we're, you know, mostly economic uh, impacts and um, you know uh, I'm not sure on the food thing I do wonder what the impact on food imports will be for us and whether or not we're prepared you know prices can come quick and mm-hmm. and I think the you know the beast from the east when we ran out of bread and milk was like an example of just how quickly we can run yeah. out of bread. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I, I wonder: are we, are we prepared? Are we are we self sufficient enough as a country to be able to produce enough ourselves? If the if the rest of the world is struggling, I don't think mm-hmm. we are. Um, but I did. I, I reviewed Mary Robinson's book for the Irish Times, and I was you know quite struck by how the the stories of the women she she spoke of how they just got on with it. They were, they're not waiting for, for the rest of the world to bail them out. They're going, okay, you know, we see what's coming and we're starting to diversify our agriculture and we're, you know, we're starting to adapt and, 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 and prepare for what's coming. And, um, and, and that's inspirational and that's what we need to be doing too. And, and uh, it's certainly something that I'm trying to focus more on personally 
um, is kind of preparing, preparing myself, preparing my family, um, you know, reskilling in, in, in understanding food production. And we just took a beekeeping course, you know, so now I kind of understand how, how to make honey. Uh, so I might be very popular at some stage. Um, you know, so that, that kind of stuff is something that we as individuals and communities need to be looking at becoming more self-sufficient. But I, I love going to Cop Nico Village in Tipperary because that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, they're mm. really, they really embody like doing it for themselves and going off grid and producing their own food. And um, and they're they're just so inspirational in terms of the, the model of community supported agriculture that they have and um, the milk club and the meat club and the bread club and you know and all of that is employing a baker and a you know a farmer and. Um, and so it, it, it's great to see those kind of examples and, and the whole transition towns movement, which um, which is really interesting. Uh, there's a great there's a great film called Demat, which means tomorrow in French, that talks yes. about that movement. And you hear about all these communities and they have their own local currencies to help local businesses. And and there's so much at the community level that we that we could be doing to to kind of prepare and make ourselves more self sufficient and also make ourselves more uh, environmentally friendly or sustainable. Thinking about that a bit more broadly, do you think Ireland can meet its 2030 or 2050 targets? Well, it's pretty clear. We, will, I mean, we're, well, we, we shot through our 2021, so can we make our 2030? The, the cl- government is saying that the Climate Action Plan will achieve that, but I, I haven't seen the evidence for that, and I, I don't actually think that they're going to reach those ambitious targets on electric vehicles, and I don't think that they're going to be able to get forestry to sequester um, the kind of carbon they want to be able to continue to intensify agriculture. So I'm very skeptical that the 2030 targets will be met. Um, and their 2050 target is like net zero emissions. And I think it's great to have that uh, ambition, but we need new politicians. We need, we need politicians that, that get it, that put this first, that, you know, the impact on climate influences every decision. I mean, you cannot build a third runway at Dublin airport and say, that you're going to tackle climate change because you're not. More planes means more climate change, you know, and you can't you can't say we're going to continue to intensify dairy production and say you're going to tackle climate change. It's not going to work, you know. Um, so until we have politicians that can be honest about that and say yes, there's going to be there's going to be some losers here because we have to tackle this issue because we have an obligation to tackle this issue. Um, until we have those kind of politicians, then no, I don't. But I, I mean, I'm seeing more of those kind of politicians popping up. So there, there is hope if young people get out and vote and, uh, and, and we, we change the people we have representing us. So if we're not going to meet our targets, how do we boost up our numbers the most? You know, where are we seriously failing? Um, well, we're seriously failing right now in transport and agriculture in particular. So I think energy is on a, on a, on a good pathway. Yeah, they're, they're probably delayed in energy right now. The government is sitting on, on this renewable energy support scheme. So there can be no further development in renewable energy until the government gets its act together and, 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 and implements a new support scheme. Um, so that's very troubling because because energy was the one place we were doing okay. Um, on transport, our emissions were just skyrocketing, and we still have this culture in the Department of Transport that it's roads, 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 
and <laughs> really nothing for um, for cycling infrastructure and kind of active transport. And, you know, uh, they rolled out these buses. I think they called them sustainable energy buses, but they're hybrid diesels. So they save they save 30 percent emissions compared to a regular diesel, but it's still too much diesel. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, there's double decker electric buses being sold on the market across the world. So you know, there's no excuse not to be electrifying our, our buses and trains. At this stage, um, so transport is just woeful and and so distressing because because our, our political representatives and our civil servants and there don't seem to get this at all. Um, so we need to revolutionize transport, and uh, and then on agriculture too, it's it's dairy, dairy, dairy. It's producing um, you know milk powder for the infant formula market in China, which is just crazy. I don't know why we're encouraging mothers not to breastfeed you know it just mm-hmm. it seems illogical to me um that this is our priority and that this is this is where our tax money is going to promote this stuff in china um so i think we could be doing you know a huge amount in terms of diversifying our agricultural productivity um and and preparing ourselves for for being more self-sufficient in our in our food production and um so those big system changes you know i think would make the biggest difference and so what impact could young people have or when it comes to climate action? Yeah, um, well, I think get out and vote um, and educate yourselves about the um, about your politicians and even pushing them, you know, contacting them. When I when I stood for election, people were contacting me a lot at the time about homelessness. And, and you know, as a result of being contacted constantly about the homeless problem, I, I started to develop opinions and policies around around homelessness that I had never you know, engaged with that topic before. So uh, so if you if you harass your politicians enough, they will realize that they that they have to have informed opinions about these issues. So, and, and I think we're very lucky in Ireland that our politicians are very accessible. So you know, email the ones in your constituency, hound them, you know, continue to tell them that this is your burning issue. And then get out and knock on doors for the candidates that are doing right. Like, you know, most of these these candidates who who get what we need to do um, are have no money and they're you know they're fighting a political system of very re- well resourced political parties. Um, so they need they need bodies on the street knocking on doors. They need people with uh, social media skills. You know, making cool videos that can go viral or whatever it is. Um, you know, they need your skills and your abilities. Um, and your voice to kind of help promote them uh, and promote the ones that are doing good. So I, w- I would say getting behind, you know, a candidate that you care about and offering them some help is really valuable. Um, so, you know, changing the political st- structure, getting involved yourself, joining a political party to try and influence them from the inside, um, uh, you know, running for politics yourself, whatever it is. But I think, um, you know, focusing on those system changes and, and taking your skills to really influence those system changes can be very helpful. What would be one thing that you would recommend people do tomorrow or could change tomorrow that will have the biggest impact going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, it's very tricky to say that because mm-hmm. all of our lifestyles are different. So for me, the one thing that, that I did that made the most impact was not you know, I was giving up flying this year and I didn't, I didn't fly for my summer holidays. Like that's not everybody flies as much as I had to for my work and, and for my family. Um, so, so I would say knowing your carbon footprint is uh, the first step. So knowing where you're using the most carbon and then starting to chip away. A lot of my work that involved flying, um, I have the things you can do and that could be dietary changes or, you know, or energy use in your home, transport. And so that's, 
that's on an individual level. Um, uh, but on a on a on a bigger picture system change level, I think that the that the most impact can be made. It's it's about getting politically active, and that could be through a political party, or through a, an NGO, or you know, or just off your own back. Um, but but being more politically engaged and being more aware of the politics of climate change would be the biggest impact. My sincerest thanks to Dr. Cara Gustenberg for sitting down and talking with me. Climate change is the largest threat facing the planet today. That's not to be melodramatic. However, we are already seeing the massive impact from rising sea levels, desertification, the loss of pollinators and many other species. Humans are truly resilient. This is not the first environmental disaster we have faced, but it is one which we are acting on the least. Ireland has been rated among the very worst for climate action in Europe. Our climate action plan, devised by the government, barely scratches the surface when it comes to acts that will help us combat this growing issue. Climate action is the UN's 13th Sustainable Development Goal. However, it is intertwined with many others. In order to achieve any of them, we need serious action. Whilst individual action is important, the ones who can force action to occur are the voters, the protesters, the people who are not okay with the status quo. Our governments need to know that we do not wish to vote for people nor parties that do not act for its population's benefit. One final thing to keep in mind. Yes, climate action will be costly. It is estimated to cost billions of dollars across the world. It will cost us billions here in Ireland too. We're already paying hundreds of millions in fines to the EU. It will be a difficult transition. It may mean sacrifices, and it will certainly mean changes to our everyday life as we currently know it. Unfortunately, for many more people around the world, those who have caused the least damage to our environment, climate change will cost them so much more than just money. And these are the people we are fighting for. This podcast was brought to you by Spunout.ie, Ireland's youth information website, in partnership with the National Youth Council of Ireland and Youth 2030, the National Youth Development Education Programme. If you want to learn more about the Sustainable Development Goals, visit spunout.ie forward slash SDG or developmenteducation at youth.ie. To get involved and to have your voice heard on the issues that matter to you, visit spunout.ie forward slash volunteer. Spunout.ie, by young people, for young people.